Hey, I'm Alan Hunter. You're listening on the Pantheon Network. This episode is brought to you by Pepsi Wild Cherry. Pepsi Wild Cherry is bursting with delicious cherry flavor and a sweet, crisp taste that gives you more to go wild for. Getting wild may look different these days, but whether it's opting for a solo Friday binge watch or a big night out, everyone can indulge in their wild side with Pepsi Wild Cherry, also available in Zero Sugar. So grab a Pepsi Wild Cherry and get wild. A one, two, three, four. Thanks for listening to this podcast produced by Diddy TV. Visit DiddyTV.com for more exclusive on-demand content or download the official Diddy TV app from your app store today. Welcome to Insights, everyone, where you'll be inspired this hour by an honest conversation with punk icon and Roots Music veteran, John Doe. As you may already be aware, the Illinois native co-founded LA-based punk band X, a group whose impact can't be calculated. And he's played an important part in various other musical groups throughout the years, while also playing parts in TV and film, including Great Balls of Fire, I'm Not There, Roadhouse, Boogie Nights, and more. In this conversation, John chats with Amy Wright plenty about the past, but they also dig into his current creations, such as his upcoming solo LP, Fables in a Foreign Land, coming May 20th via Fat Possum Records. Let's see what they uncover. And we'll connect again at the end of the show. This is Insights from Diddy TV. So we're in Memphis, right downtown. And uh, Memphis has a trolley that runs right down Main Street. And our studio, our television studio, is right here. In fact, we back up to the Civil Rights Museum, if you know what that is. And um, we're about five blocks from Bill Street and other fun stuff. And uh, so, yeah, we're right here. And where are you today? I'm at home in Austin. Very cool. Very yeah. cool. Well, I spent, uh, quite, I spent quite a bit of time in, in Memphis back during um, Great Balls of Fire movie. Oh, and, yeah. Uh, you know, I was going to talk to you a little bit about that. But uh, was that a totally fun movie to make? I mean, I would think that would be really. <laughs> <laughs> yes, or, is, as, or is every movie the same? I don't know. No, no. It, it was really fun and just about killed us. There was a lot of shenanigans. I, I bet. Tell, tell me yes. one shenanigan. <laughs> well, actually, uh, Mojo Nixon's manager, Bullethead, reminded me that we shot off um, bottle rockets under the door of his hotel. So they would, <laughs> they would go flying <laughs> into his room. <laughs> I don't actually remember that. And I, I denied it. But then he said, oh, yeah, I heard you laughing outside. So. Oh, so that is totally reminding me of when I was a kid and there was a kid in our neighborhood who shot a bottle rocket up my parents' stairway. Mm. So, yeah, my dad was very cool about it, though, even though it kind of kind of destroyed a few things in the house. (laughs) He was okay. Up your up your stairway from inside the house up the stairs. Yeah, well, he we opened the door, rang the doorbell and opened the door and then he shot the bottle rocket. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> up up the staircase. Well done. So, yeah, very well done. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, well, did you get to meet Jerry Lee Lewis? Yeah, of course. Yeah. Yeah, he was um, alternately. He was very Jerry Lee. Alternately frightening and charming. Oh yeah, that's him. And yeah. 
he chooses to play when he wants to play. And, uh, you know, he can at this point. He can do whatever he wants to do. <laughs> he's earned it. Yeah. Well, I, I'm, I'm glad he's still around. I, I know he's kind of um, diminished. But, yeah, it was, it was great. He, he threatened to shut down the whole um, production like the night before we were going to start. For, for what reason? Oh, because he, cause, I guess because <laughs> they based the script off of Myra's book. And he didn't and, agree with know, parts of it or? Oh, it was a, um, it's a kind of a long story, but the, but the short version is we all met uh, the director, Jim McBride, the uh, assistant director and, and one of the producers, Jack Barron. I, for some reason, was included in it. Uh, Dennis, of course, Dennis Quaid. And Jerry Lee and his and his wife at that time, Carrie, um, and his, I think his manager Jerry Chef, was there as well, and and Jerry Lee showed up at the um, at the meeting in the lobby with a copy of the script, and he had a you know a black X marked across one page, and a never happened in Sharpie on, you know, three pages later and like a big question mark on, you know, the page following. So it's just like, this is all bullshit. <laughs> I don't know how you come up with all this kind of stuff. None of this ever happened. Blah, blah, blah. <laughs> a couple of martinis later, he was a little more um, friendly. Yeah. Yeah. And once he thought about, hey, this movie's going to make me a lot of money. So let's get on. I don't know if it, it did or not. <laughs> it was kind of a big bomb. Because because that was just after the uh, Rolling Stone article where they, you know, made a case for him killing one of his wives, <clears throat> which I don't know. Um, oh, I don't even recall that article. So. Oh, yeah, it was very scandalous. And and everyone wanted to see, you know, the Jerry Lee, the killer, the Jerry Lee, the crazy, you know, aging, furious, like insane person but it was you know dennis was playing him as the you know young dumb kid who went from faraday to memphis and then you know playing for ten thousand dollars a night <clears throat> but so it was you know it was kind of like a musical comedy <laughs> <laughs> so i want to get to your acting because that's going to come a little bit later because i got to start with your musical right. career we're going to go back and we're just going to kind of cover a few things that happened early in your life. I just want to know how you got started in music as a kid. Were you playing guitar? Were you singing? Were you writing music? When did all that start? For you? Um, well, my mom sang. My dad played piano. They loved classical music. So there was a lot of music in the house. Um, and I, I kind of watched my mom sing. And so I, I think that's one way I, I learned you know, pitch and, and kind of breathing. And, uh, you know, I sang in the choir and, uh, you know, in school and that was, that was okay. You know, um, I, pre I pretended to read music like everyone else. And, um, you know, I'm of an age where all the, you know, soul music and rock and roll music was on the radio and the British invasion and then Motown and, all that stuff, you know, and and then when I was a young teenager, maybe fourteen, something like that, or fifteen, psychedelic music was 
came in, you know, and I was a huge fan of the doors and Janis Joplin and, and all that stuff. So that's when I started playing bass because two other friends, one played guitar and one played piano. So I played bass and that's how, that's how I started writing songs, which is kind of a different way of, of songwriting. All the early X songs I wrote on bass. So that's kind of an interesting way to write. And were you writing the melody and the lyrics and then the bass and then your bandmates, were they adding all their parts? How did that work? Uh, well, I would be writing the chords with the kind of root note of the bass. And then I would figure out, you know, I, I, I took one class in college, the one year that I went to real college uh, in music theory, but I had also taken piano. So I knew, you know, what was a major and a minor chord and things like that. But it, it gave Billy Zoom a lot of latitude to, to figure out how he wanted to voice the guitar chords. And, um, you know, I would just sing and play bass. So it, it became, it was more like one piece. You know, people talk about singing and playing bass be, being difficult, but not if you kind of write them all together. And Exene and I collaborated on lyrics. She she wrote a lot of, you know, she'll, she would write entire lyrics for one song and I would write most of the lyrics for another and she would add and, or I would edit and, you know, it was, yeah. And you guys met in LA. Yeah. Why did, that was after college, right? Yeah. And why did you move to LA in the first place? Because I lived in Baltimore and who wanted to stay in Baltimore? <laughs> Now, I, I had, my parents lived in Brooklyn at the time, and I'd gone up to CBGB's in Max's Kansas City and, and saw all the flyers that were pasted up on walls. And uh, I was just sick of the East Coast. And, and it seemed like New York in, you know, 75, which is when I, when I really considered leaving. I, I ended up leaving like the end of 76, uh, by then, you know, New York was really kind of the, the scene was well on its way. And, and I didn't want to kind of I didn't want to try to move there, break into the scene that was already established. And like I say, I was just sick of the East Coast. Well, there's better weather in California anyway. <laughs> way. <laughs> way better. Well, it's also the the you can do anything on the West Coast. And on the East Coast, there's a on the East Coast, there's a lot of negativity and like oh you can't do that don't do that and don't do that and it's like fuck you i'm so tired <laughs> so tired of your you know stick in the mud all I, re I remember somebody tried to do that and it didn't work so you can't do that it's like okay you cool. mean philosophically they shut you down more on the east coast and philosophically on the west coast they just say hey run run with that do whatever you yeah. want to do yeah absolutely so when you got to la what was the music scene like in la then compared to new york uh, it was pretty much just industry, uh, and a lot of the major clubs were shut down or playing disco. There were cover bands at the Whiskey A Go Go and the Starwood, which is which closed a while ago. And uh, so there was just kind of a wide open music scene with a bunch of misfits, you know, kind of roaming around. And then we all collected at this place called The Mask. There's a lot of that. You know, I, I wrote a, a couple of books on L.A. punk rock and uh, I got several different people to write chapters. And, and I was a bit of the narrator, along with my co-writer, Tom DeSavia. We would 
trade-off chapters and and so you get a lot of voices and it, and it actually tells a pretty good story about being in LA at the time. So that was under the big black sun? Yeah, that's the first five years. And then More Fun in the New World is uh, the second, you know, from I think 70, 75 to 80 or 70, no, 77 to 82 and then 82 to 87. So how did you get plugged into the punk scene in L.A.? How did that happen? You created it? <laughs> it? No, it just it was it was sort of going. You know, there, there were some bands like um, the Motels were playing then and uh, the, a band called The Pop and another one called the, the Dogs. And I think there was I think the Mystic Knights of Oingo Boingo were doing a few shows here and there and. You know, you just kind of gravitated. You went on Hollywood Boulevard and you saw somebody who looked like you and you said, hey, you're... Where are you hanging out? Yeah, you're hanging out on Hollywood Boulevard. <laughs> so, um, and, and and like I say, there was a... Then the, the first... I, I don't know how I ran into them. Maybe at a, a coffee shop. Coffee shops were big. You know, a, a big meeting place because they would stay open all night. Um. I met Xene at a writing workshop. I met Billy through this uh, paper called The Recycler, which which had uh, you know ads to sell and classified ads sell and and buy and meet people and do stuff. So, what drew you to writing poetry? Oh, I don't know. Probably to try to understand how I felt better. You know, I was writing. I was writing. I wouldn't. I don't know if I would call it poetry, but I was writing back in Baltimore. Uh, and, and yeah, like in 72, 73. And, uh, you know, of course I was playing music and listening to what I thought were poets, you know, writers, whether it's Jim Morrison or Patti Smith or, or, um, you know, David Bowie, whatever. And, and then I went back to school, uh, at, at Antioch college. And Antioch had all kind in Baltimore. They had all kinds of branches all over the country. And uh, enrolled. There was a writing workshop, a writing program there. So I wrote some prose, mostly poetry. And uh, I'm still in touch with my teacher from there, who who was incredible. She was uh, Grace Cavallari, who is now the um, poet laureate of Maryland. <laughs> Which is well, that's she pretty big. Yeah, she lords it over all of our other friends, and that's great. <laughs> that's a good thing. So how did you meet everybody, and how did you form the band, and when did you know that you were going to be a band? And Oh, uh, well, like I said, I met Xene at a writing workshop, and that was only a, a month or two after I moved there. And um, I met Billy through uh, this classified ad, and the, the, the ads that we placed were pretty similarly worded, you know, no long guitar solos, no, um, yeah, no old fashioned rock music. And, um, yeah, we called each other on the same day the like the day that the paper would come out, which I think was Thursdays. So Billy and I just started playing old songs with, uh, a couple of different people. And then Xene had a, had a couple of poems that were definitely songs and I encouraged her to kind of come over and Billy wasn't all that excited at first, but then he realized, you know, what a powerhouse she was. 
in her writing and stuff. And, uh, you know, I, I give uh, everybody credit for, for coming up with, with what it sounded like, in addition to the whole scene, because it was, it was very inclusive and, and uh, pretty, uh, you know, people influenced each other a lot. You know, bands like um, Fear or uh, The Plugs or The Alley Cats. I mean, in addition to ones that you may have heard of, like The Screamers or The Germs or Weirdos and things like that. So, Was there a mission or a message when you first got together or did it just evolve? Oh, there was nothing um, calculated. We just wanted to play music that didn't suck. <laughs> you know, uh, which is hard to do, by the way. <laughs> well, not really. <laughs> uh, my partner has this has this new theory that that people have uh, have lost the lost the ability to call bullshit on stuff. <laughs> Whether I might agree like, with him. <laughs> yeah. Well, she she says like either politics or culture or you know fashion or or music or art or whatever. You know, if something just is contrived or calculated or, you know, sometimes it's just bullshit. You can call bullshit on it, but, but people have lost their their desire or interest in calling bullshit on things. So um, I think I, I think if you have a certain, you know, I, I'll give Billy Zoom a lot of credit for, for keeping our, our boundaries kind of um, uh, solid, you know, a, 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 you know, you can play this. We shouldn't play that, you know, and because if you try to play everything, then it, you don't have any real um, style or direction. So, uh, yeah. So Los Angeles was your first uh, album, right? Yes. But on, on the other hand, there was the, the 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 message was to to play music that uh, affected people, that related to people, that told a story that people could um, see themselves in. And, and it was, you know, the, the beauty of, a, of any kind of scene is that, you know, there's a lot of um, give and take with different types of art. You know, it was, there was some performance artists, there, there were, you know, visual artists and, and writers and all kinds of people that were kind of working on similar things. And uh, and if you weren't on stage, then you were probably watching one of your friends who was on stage. So there was a lot of, you know, there wasn't much division between those two. You know, it wasn't, yeah. Why do you think the music resonated with people right at that point in time? I don't know, because the songwriters and musicians and singers and things like that looked like them felt like them so they created stuff like them they 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 didn't relate to peter frampton they didn't relate to boston the the band they didn't you know it was like really that's all i get <laughs> i i like something a little more immediate and you know you could say that you know the, the ramones and and the new york scene were a big influence on us the London scene to some people as much or more. Um, so we, there was a, you know, there was a groundswell, even though it was, it was really uphill battle because 
radio wanted to stick with like what became classic rock and you know there weren't any clubs across the country and there was no you know college radio was barely getting started so so where did you you play what's that like when you toured where did you play if there weren't oh we, we played wherever we could we would tour the west coast in in say 79 uh or 78 and um you know san francisco had a had a good scene the seattle was starting to have a scene portland to a lesser degree and um san diego and a few places outside of the la area but uh the first time we played new york which was in 78 we had put out a, a single and uh we drove from california to new york city because Xene's sister lived there and she booked three shows for us and then we drove home <laughs> we <laughs> actually way we to go. Another, yeah, we, yeah well that was all that there was or all that we knew about and uh, we played one other show on the way back from someone that we met in New York uh, at a in a place called Schwenksville, Pennsylvania. And it was around Christmas time. It was cold and lonely, <laughs> cold, dark. <laughs> it's like, let's go back to California. And, and there were probably about, you know, 12 people or maybe 15 at the show. Was- you know, there was actually a punk scene going on in Washington, D.C., and some on the East Coast, too. How would you yeah. say the West Coast scene differed from the East Coast or Washington, D.C. sort of punk scene? Uh, well, the, the, the D.C. scene that I'm familiar with was, you know, Minor Threat, and, and that was a, a little bit later. That was a little more uh, akin to the hardcore sound. Mm-hmm. So I'm not that familiar with it. I mean, I, I know Ian and... and, and they were they were much more um, militant about you know you can only charge five dollars and and it's they were very you know uh, determined to, to keep it a certain way and and we were a little bit more capitalist and just thought we just want to play music and reach reach people we don't want to be jerks and we don't want to you know take advantage of, of people because it is about community you know all music is but um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I'm sure that in D.C., like I was saying, any scene, people people got to work together in order to make it make it happen because you, you don't have the resources. Everybody's got to pitch in. Was the punk scene collaborative or was it competitive? Oh, very collaborative. I mean, you wanted to, when you got your chance, you wanted to be as good as you could. You know, you wanted to play. You wanted to play better than the band that played before you, for sure. I did, you know. So how but did yeah, y'all's I, life change after you put out your first album? Oh, we were just able to, to tour around the country. You know, we, were, it was, we, could, we had more opportunities. But s- still, I mean, it was very word of mouth and, you know, small fanzines and things like that. Well, and there was actually, you appeared in a movie, The Decline of Western Civilization by Penelope Spheris. Yeah. And um, was that being filmed while you were work, um, living through it, or was it later? No, it was at the, at the time. I mean, I think it, uh, it was filmed in 80 or 79 or 80. 
79 and 80. I mean, it, it came out just after Darby killed himself. Hmm. So I, you could look that up. It was like a just maybe two or three weeks after that. Oh, it was it was the same time that uh, around the same time that John Lennon got killed. Mm. And uh, and and we went on tour <laughs> like like a week after that. So yeah, I mean, yeah, it was I mean that Penelope made a movie that was somewhat controversial at the time because it didn't show the earliest part of the L.A. punk rock scene. Some bands like the Weirdos or Alley Cats or Plugs or Screamers and, you know, things like that. She showed, in, and it was current. It was of the time when the hardcore scene was starting to take over the, the original scene. So um, some people were pissed off because it didn't show the inclusiveness. It was, it was showing that there were, you know, a bunch of... Uh, there was a new wave of latchkey kids that were, you know, a lot more testosterone in the music and stuff like that. So, but in retrospect, it was, it was very accurate of the way that the music was shifting. So you've also put out a lot of solo albums throughout your career. Why yeah. was that important to you? Uh, just a different way to express other stories and emotions. And, and um, I, I don't know, I'm, I, I guess I'm still driven. Um, I, th <laughs> I should count and I will after this interview because I, <laughs> but I don't think of those sort of things. I think this is my 12th solo record. So, yeah. That's and what I counted, but I'm not going to. Be the defendant. Sure, let's say twelve. I, I, okay. I like I like the number twelve. It's it's uh, twelve is a nice number. Yes, it's it's uh, both three and four. Yes, <laughs> I'll agree with you on uh, that. <laughs> um, why is it important? Because you know, philosophically, I think if you have an opportunity or you have a uh, some sort of a gift or or interest in making things you should i mean why why wouldn't you i mean saying no stops everything it stops the conversation it stops you know and, and it's important to say no when you don't really when you believe that you shouldn't do something if you if you don't get it like um if someone asks asks you anyone to do something and you don't get it you should say no, unless you want to try to get it, unless you're, you know, that's something that you always thought, well, oh yeah, I would like to learn how to do that. You know, getting out of your comfort zone and, and that sort of thing. But um, yeah, I have the opportunity. And, and uh, once I had some songs and started looking around for a company, uh, Fat Possum, who put out the last X record and re-released the, um, the old X records, they were interested and, and they, they're a great company. You know, they, they really, they're all about art. They're all about doing things that are cool. So you released an, another X album a couple of years ago, right? And that was the first one y'all had done in, a, in quite a while. Yes. And why did you decide to do that then? Uh, basically that because we had, we had no excuse not to. We had talked about doing it, but 
sometimes it's an uphill climb and you don't have a record company or you don't have a producer that you trust or you don't know, you know, so why would you, you know, especially after you've written a bunch of songs, you know, a few hundred songs, why would you put all the time and effort into writing more songs if there's no place to put them? So, yeah, we, we got all those things together and NXN and I started writing and, and that it came out uh, right as the pandemic was shutting shutting everything down. Yeah, well, and X has some really crazy loyal fans. Did you feel pressure when you put out this album after having um, a hiatus? Uh... Oh, maybe to a degree. Um, we just, instead of trying to reinvent something, we played to our strengths. And, and it takes a while to, to really figure that out without sounding like something like some other song you wrote but it's in the same ballpark wheelhouse whatever well i want to get to the new album which is uh fables in a foreign land i listened to the whole thing mm -hmm. it's a great album and Good. um really enjoyed it but a uh, couple more questions um, along the way obviously we talked about great balls of fire you've been in movies you've done quite a bit of acting um, mm -hmm. Boogie Nights, and you were in Roswell. I saw that. Um, <laughs> was a really, really fun series. Um, yeah, it was. It was super fun. So what is it that, uh, or how did you get into acting? Um, when did that happen? And um, you've obviously uh, continued with it, so. Yeah. Um, I think it must have been mid-'80s, maybe 83 or something like that. Allison Anders was, uh, and Kurt Voss and Dean Lent. They graduated from UCLA Film School and they started making a movie using uh, a number of LA musicians as actors. And they asked me if I'd be in it. And people like uh, Chris D from this band, The Flesh Eaters, was the lead. And Dave Alvin played a small part. And Allison's sister, uh, Luann Anders, she played a part. And, um, and they asked me if I'd do it. And I said, well, I, sure, I guess. Why not? I mean, that's the thing about opportunities, you know, I, again. And uh, so she was the first person who I, I made, an, uh, you know, an actual like, dramatic movie with. And then there was a, an agent that worked in the theatrical department of this uh, agency that handled X. And <clears throat> her name was Maggie Abbott. She, she worked with... Um, David Essex and I think maybe David Bowie at the beginning of his film career. So she knew different musicians that, that did some acting. And uh, I think the second kind of notable movie was Salvador with Oliver Stone. And I played a small part in that and hung out with James Woods and uh, Jim Belushi down in Mexico. And it was like, what was <laughs> that <gosh>. like? <laughs> uh, it was crazy. I mean, it was, it was, um, it was, what's a better word than crazy? It was um, daunting. And, and uh, you know, I, I worked the very, at the very beginning of the production. So Oliver Stone really hadn't done a big movie like that. And he was just, he didn't know. <laughs> I don't think he, he knew what he was getting into. Uh 
James Woods is incredibly smart. And uh, Jim Belushi is a, you know, a kind of prankster. So I was only there for a couple, couple weeks, maybe. Well, Oliver Stone's pretty big. Did you learn anything by working with a director like Oliver Stone? Uh, no, because I didn't have enough experience to, to mm -hmm. I was just trying to keep my head down and like somebody said, not bump into the furniture. <laughs> uh, I mean, I was in over my head. I, I did a few other movies and then um, I, I, I did one with Harry Dean Stanton uh, called Slam Dance and, and realized I was, I was truly out of my league. And after that, I, I did some um, classes, did some improv and some other, uh, you know, acting classes and read some books and things like that and started to get a little more serious about it. So creatively, what does acting satisfy that, say, being in a band or playing music doesn't? Uh, I don't know. It's, it's a little mysterious. Um, early on, it was, uh, I approached it in a very mercenary sense. It was like, I get paid what? <laughs> for a week? I get paid $5,000 for a week? Shit. Okay. I'll give that a shot. Sign me up. Oh, yeah. Oh, and I get health care? Hell yeah. Um, but later on, uh, you know, the, I just, I did a movie before the lockdown. Um, it was a, it's a remake of DOA, the, the film noir movie with Edmund O'Brien. Mm -hmm. And we did it in, in uh, St. Augustine. It's uh, we did it in the period in which it, you know, originally happened in 1949 and I played the lead and, and it was because I wanted to prove to myself that I could. And I love film noir. Who doesn't? Right. Um, so it was, it was to kind of, maybe it's not, maybe it's similar to, to writing the songs for this most recent record because it, it was immersive and you have to stay on track and you have to be disciplined and not be distracted to, to write or be something else. You have to be that person the whole time. If it's, if it's going to work, if it's, if it's going to be good. So, yeah. And, and it's also, it's, it's, it's more private, you know, than a, 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 a deeper, maybe more personal satisfaction when you do so, when you do a scene or you, you go through some, you know, some, some stuff and you, you know, whether, whether it's good or not, you know, whether you went there or not. And you, you do on stage if you're singing songs, but sometimes the audience doesn't get it, doesn't take that trip with you. And then you have to rely on them like applauding and approving and saying, yay, you got it. And I went there with you. But with your, if you're, you know, if you're playing in your own bedroom, you know whether you got there or not. You don't have to worry about. But if you're, and if you're acting in a, acting in, in something, and you get there, you kind of know it. If the director and other people say good job, that's nice. But it's not as, uh, it, it's just an affirmation of what you already kind of know. How much of your success in both music and acting? or anything else I should say is about you pushing yourself. 
Oh, <laughs> I don't know, maybe a 30 or 40%. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I do try to do things that I'm... <laughs> Out of not your totally, comfort zone or <laughs> not, I was going to say ill-equipped to do. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I want to have the fun in life though. I mean, it wouldn't be fun. It is. If... It, it is. Um, doing the same thing over and over. It can be boring, but at the same time, I do like, I'm really lucky that I are fortunate that I enjoy singing and playing for people. I enjoy kind of trying to relate to them. Um, yeah, I, to a degree, but, but I, you know, I, I don't try to, I don't pretend I'm an, I'm an unpretender. I don't try to pretend that I'm something else. I don't try to reinvent myself. I, I may, you know, get a theme and try to work on it, but I'm not going to just say, Oh, this time I'm going to do a, you know, Broadway record or a, you know, jazz record. I know what I, I, I think I know what I can do, but there, that's, you can stretch those boundaries sometimes. Oh, there's the trolley. There's the trolley. Isn't that fun? There it is. Yeah, that's cool. It's going right behind me. I can hear it. And actually the whole building shakes. Oh, nice. So that's actually kind of fun too. Yeah. Um, hopefully it doesn't fall down. That, w- that wouldn't be good. But um, so that, this takes us to Fables in a Foreign Land. And mm-hmm. that's your new album. How did the idea for the concept behind this come about? Uh, well, there, um, hmm. so, so I've tried to answer that question in my own, in my mind. Um, I would say one of the first inspirations was driving from Omaha to, um, I'm sorry, from Kansas City to Omaha. Uh, I think it was in, 2017 or maybe 2018 and uh missouri river had overflowed and had just i i don't know how many tens of thousands of acres were underwater i mean three or four feet underwater you could just see the tops of the fences for miles and um so that that had an impact and then that song missouri came along after that um i had this i i had this uh i was kind of i I think everyone shares some uh skepticism about the gains we've made through technology and are kind of tired of having to have another learning curve because you get another freaking computer or phone it's like really really do i have to learn that as well (laughs) <laughs> I am so right there with you on that one. Yeah, I, I th- and, and you know, it's not just, uh, you know, people who are over 30 or over 40, you know, it's even younger people. It's like, fuck this. Why am I really gaining that much? Anyway, so that, that kind of played into it. And there were a couple of songs, a couple of older songs that I included towards the end because I realized that they had a similar um, theme. But uh, I had this idea of, of someone... Uh, escaping. I had someone, uh, the idea of pursuit or fleeing. And, and then as the songs were coming together, the um, pandemic hit, and then there was a lot of isolation. So, you know, 
loneliness, fear, isolation, you know, so, so then there was a lot of fodder for that um, emotionally and, and lyrically. Is there a time period that these songs are set in? Uh, it's pre-industrial. So mm -hmm. I'm, I'm just choosing kind of arbitrarily 1890s. You were know, there you was thinking, still, yeah. Were you thinking about the plight of people at that time? Not the, no, more of the individual of, of how hard it is just, to, or, but partly, yeah, how hard it is to uh, put food on the table to keep your shelter from blowing away and things like that. You know, sometimes I actually think about my great grandmother who was born in the late 1800s and she went from having no cars or anything like that, uh, no electronics, no nothing, to yes. a, a man on the moon because she was 99 <laughs> when she died. So yeah. she was, uh, they, she witnessed a man walking on the moon. And I thought how crazy it must have been to see that amount of change happen during her lifetime and sort of processing mm -hmm. that change. Um, but then I also wondered if, when you look back, if you think that the time was much simpler back then, or it was just harder. I don't know the answer to that. Um, I, it, it was simpler in that it was more direct, I think. Mm -hmm. Now there's a bunch of indirect, you know, <laughs> the way people ghost you on the phone. It's like, that's just wrong. <laughs> it, yeah. Well, they ghost but, you all over the place now, John. It's it's yeah. on email, oh, know, it's I on mean, text. Yeah. It's they just ghost you. They decide that there's this weird barrier that they don't have to be polite anymore. Yeah. You know, there is a distance between us because of technology, and so I don't have to answer. I'm just going to walk away from this and not yeah. say anything, not face anything. Not <laughs> right. Well, you can't. Yeah, you can't. You can't do that. If there's a bear. <laughs> That's <laughs> or, a very good point. Or coyotes or, or, you know, something like that. Um, so, yeah, I think it was. But, I mean, there was so much. Uh, it, it, it was so hard. There was so much suffering. Um, whether it was, you know, slavery or, or just uh, tr trying not to uh, freeze to death or, or things like that. But so a lot of your energy was spent towards just taking care of the most basic things. Just living. Yeah. Now so, we have all that taken care of. Now we have all that taken care of. So, you, so, you know, what's the phrase uh, idle hands are the devil's workshop, you know? So, so now you just, that now, now your mind takes over and, and you kind of leave your core, you know, your intuition and, and things like that behind. Well, and it's interesting that when we're put in positions of survival now, I'm not sure we do as well because we're right. not used to having to deal with no electricity or um, no. whatever else comes your way that is sort of a, um, the basis of your existence. You know, yeah. food in the grocery store, there's no toilet paper, you know, there's no electricity, whatever it is that, that we're so well, used see, to. That's, these how, that's, that's how I was very lucky in, in writing these themes about survival. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and so, and because it sort of happened, you know, I mean, yeah. So, so who collaborated with you on the album? Well, Louis Perez from Los Lobos. Uh, I was working on the song El Romanzo. 
and uh, it's about someone who's very clueless and, and lies all the time and gives themselves the nickname El Romanso. And um, everybody knows you can't give yourself your own nickname. You have no. to earn it. That's you have to earn role. it. Whether you do something stupid or you do something wonderful, that's how you get your nickname. Um, and so I, I thought a, a verse in Spanish would be would be uh, appropriate. And Louis, you know, is one of the main wordsmiths in Los Lobos, and he's an old pal. And um, uh, Shirley Manson and X, uh, well, the band Garbage and Blondie and Xene and I did a tour where we we opened the show and then Garbage played and then Blondie played. And we had played with Blondie some years before and, um, but Shirley and Xene and I, you know, really hit it off along with, you know, it was a very simpatico kind of tour. And at some point Shirley said, you know, we should write a murder ballad. And I thought, yeah. <laughs> You're dark. <laughs> <laughs> You've dealt with a lot of demons. This is fucking great opportunity. And then nothing happened. And a few months later, I saw her at another show and uh, said, hey, whatever happened to that murder ballad? He goes, oh, I've got all the lyrics. You know, I'll send them to you tomorrow. It's like, okay. You weren't planning on telling me that? Fine. <laughs> but then I, so I, I kind of came up with a, a three, four time, a waltz time, um, what sounded sort of old fashioned and, and folky to me. Mm -hmm. And then they, we recorded it with garbage and it became very goth and heavy and, you know, sounding like the band. And so uh, Xene sang part of it. I sang, Xene um, contributed some lyrics as well. I kind of, you know, edited some stuff and, but it sounded, it didn't sound like I originally thought. It could. And so then I redid it in four, four time for this record <clears throat> in a more traditional kind of um, folk murder ballad way. <clears throat> and also uh, Terry Allen, who's a pretty famous visual artist and, and very famous in Texas uh, musician. Part of that Flatlander crew with Jimmy mm -hmm. Dale Gilmore and Joe Ely and Butch Hancock. And, uh, you know, they're all from Lubbock out in the flatlands <clears throat> and uh terry's a little older than me and and uh we hit it off and he's a kind of a new friend and uh i sent him a song i was thinking maybe he had some lyrics that he wasn't doing anything with and since uh he is pretty you know he <laughs> he, he writes very um cinematic and and narrative driven songs so i thought you know, he would have something might be similar. So I sent him that song, the first song on the record, Never Coming Back, because I thought it was done. And he and he sent it, you know, I, I was just giving him an idea of what, you know, what I was up to. And he sent a bunch of lyrics back, uh, like a bridge and more uh, for the for that song. And it's like, no, this song is done. I want something. And that was my first thought. And then my second thought was like, get out of your ego and man, oh shit, maybe the song isn't done. And then I added in some of the words that he that he sent me. So how does Never Coming Back set the tone for the album? Because um, in the first two verses, um, someone is fleeing because their mom and dad have been killed and the home's been burned down. 
you know, now they have to they have to leave and he's he's never coming back. And he would be leaving from, I don't know, maybe Tennessee or, you know, somewhere in the south and going towards the west. And the record is basically what he sees or she. It could be a she. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, either what happens to them or what they exp- what they see. And so, or what the song, told. so the songs in between are sort of taking you through this journey then. What about After the Fall? Tell me about that song. Um, it's two different pieces of writing. The the first and last verse, uh, in a bountiful land and in a generous land, were one piece of writing. and then, But it was originally inspired by an image of someone hiding in the water and looking it, it, within reeds and looking into the water and seeing blood and realizing, oh, <laughs> that's my blood. That's that's bad. Um, and then I just kind of made a story. It's it's a bit about the destruction of America and and how you know somewhat unintentional, but you know completely insatiable, like the, the last word in the song. Um, yeah. Well, I like I like the fact that the the album kind of comes full circle. So there's hope at the end where the songbird songbirds sing. Yeah. So um, tell us a little bit about the final song on the album. Uh, I would say it's inspired by by the kids' song, by the folk song "Big Rock Candy Mountain." I started doing that just kind of because I remember it as a kid, and I relearned it, and it's a it's a wonderful song. It's got really some really crazy lyrics um, where the person, you know, in the big rock candy mountain, the person is dreaming to go to a place that's, you know, like heaven. And, but it's only like hobo. It's hobo heaven, you know, Uh, in the big rock candy mountain, you never change your socks and little streams of alcohol come trickling down the rocks. It's like, okay. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the birds and the bees and the cigarette trees in the Big Rock Candy Mountain, you know. So, uh, and and it was, I wanted to have the let the character at the end of this have some relief and satisfaction and um, maybe some security. At, at least, you know, I'm. I envision it as making the journey all the way across the country and seeing the Pacific Ocean for the first time and and thinking like, oh, this I could I could <laughs> I could get used to this. <laughs> uh, this this is not as hard. And and I I philosophically I think that that's important. You know, sometime when you're in your 40s or 50s, if you make it that far, you have to you have to find some satisfaction doesn't mean you're or gratitude doesn't mean you're soft you've lost your edge doesn't mean you can't you know you still you're capable of doing fucked up stuff or, or stupid stuff or or even dangerous stuff but it, there's a big difference between an angry old man and an angry young man you know you can still be angry about the same stuff but you have to you know find some satisfaction in yourself some some kindness and empathy and things like that. That's, that's the thing that, that blows my mind is that through all this pandemic, it seems as though people's 
ability to have empathy hasn't increased like hardly at all. I think people got angrier. It was That's so kind fucked of, up. It is. It is. I, but I, I, mean, and I, I agree with you. Yeah. Because you would think that we would have all become, hey, we're just living on this planet together. Yeah. You know, that we, we need to help each other out and, you know, be kind to our fellow humans. And instead, everyone is in their corner lashing out at, yeah. at everyone. So it's, it's been very strange. I agree with you. Yeah. But anyway, uh, you know, you can only do, you know, you have to take care of yourself first and, and then you can, you know. Well, and I like the fact that the song does give hope at the end and he's, you know, he's coming out of this and there's a yeah. great, great story to tell. And it is in parallel with everything we've been going through in society for the past <laughs> couple of years. Hopefully yes. there's a little hope out there and we can all um, start enjoying ourselves again and being in each other's company and um, hearing some live music. That would be good, too. Yes. Well, uh, I'm, I'm planning to come to Memphis at some point, so I hope that you're around and oh come see us come see us come see the studio and obviously uh be great to to hear your the uh, album are you touring for this album is that what you're going to be yeah yeah i'm i i don't know exactly when i'm I'm doing a uh about a two-week tour in june um going up the east coast but i i was so smart to get willie nelson's bass player kevin smith so that Kevin is really a, smart. <laughs> he's an incredible musician, but he gets busy. <laughs> and when Willie says, hey, I got a gig, you got to go. Willie comes first. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I, I defer to, to Willie Nelson. Um, but there are other people, you know, Austin has a, a just a ton of great musicians. So I'm, I'm very fortunate to, to be able to tap into that. Well, before yeah. we go, I did want to ask you about your boots. Oh. Because I saw that you have a line of boots. And well, I thought they I were have, great. Yes. My uh, partner, uh, Chrissy, who goes uh, under the handle um, Featherweight Studio, uh, Chrissy Tegerstrom, and I have been together for some time. And uh, a friend of ours is uh, owns this boot company called Heritage Boots. And they have one store downtown uh, or South Congress in Austin. And she took it over recently from the original owner, who's also a pal of ours. And um, she wanted to kind of put her own stamp on on some designs of boots. And she asked Chrissy and I to design something. <laughs> and she uh, Chrissy started using arrows uh, probably eight, eight or nine years ago. She painted some arrows on a suit that I, that I wear. And um, so we just put it together and they're very comfortable and they're made in Mexico by a third generation bootmaker down in Lyon. And uh, they're not like hand, they're handmade, but they're not like uh, custom per to your foot, that, that kind of thing. And they're fancy. And They are fancy. Yeah. I thought they were great. Thanks. And uh, so Fables in a Foreign Land out on Fat Possum in another month or so, I think. Uh, May, yeah, the, May. the middle of May, and actually, I think there's a um, a new single. You know, we made a I made a video with um, Gilbert Trejo Trejo, who's a terrific uh, creative filmmaker, 
he's just he worked on he's worked on a lot of videos he's, he's done some by this new band called star crawler mm -hmm. uh you may have heard of <clears throat> and he he worked on an x video and it's it's uh, a video for the song el romanzo great well everyone needs to catch that too and john it was a pleasure having you on diddy tv today and yeah wish you the was... best and we can't wait for you to come see us i i will try uh, is is there another place to play besides Hernando's Hideaway? Oh yes, I should know. Yes, and I will get that information to you. Okay. There, there's right a bunch on. of other places, so I'll I'll uh, send right. you some info on that, and uh, you can decide what fits best with your music. Right on. Okay. A pleasure. Pleasure. And thanks for the thanks for the wide ranging conversation. I, I love it. Me too. All Thank right. you so much. You have yeah. a great week. You too. Take care. Take care. Bye-bye. Many thanks to John Doe for dropping by to connect with us here at Diddy TV. For decades, John's been a teacher and a guide through music, writing, acting, and other pursuits. We hope you enjoyed exploring his creative and compassionate mind in conversation this hour, and that you'll consider ordering a copy of his new record, Fables in a Foreign Land, available to the public on May 20th via Fat Possum Records. Get your order in today at fatpossum.com. From all of us at Diddy TV, thanks again for tuning in today. And we hope to see you again soon, right here on Insights.